Our text today is from Matthew chapter 21 as we continue our verse-by-verse study through Matthew's gospel. Hear now God's holy word. When they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might hear it, that we might properly apply it. Father, deliver us from every error, deliver us from every distraction. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our nearest kinsman. Amen. Amen. People of God, hardly anybody today would think of a donkey as being a particularly intelligent or noble creature. If you were asked to list the attributes of a donkey, you might say donkeys are stupid, donkeys are stubborn, donkeys are servile and slow. And this is reinforced by all of our great modern medieval to modern literature. In Aesop's fables, for example, donkeys appear frequently as fools. In Pinocchio, when the little puppet is led astray into wickedness, he turns into a donkey. Shakespeare popularized the, the old English word for donkey. Uh, he popularized that as an insult for a fool. The most sympathetic donkey in the canon of modern Western literature the best donkey everybody loves is Eeyore, but he's best described as mopey and pessimistic. Certainly not noble, certainly not regal. But these negative sentiments about donkeys were not held in the ancient world. In fact, donkeys were viewed as quite the opposite. Donkeys were a sign of wealth. Kings and queens would be buried with their donkeys. They were symbols of service and peace and humility. They were thought to be loyal and patient. Donkeys had a number of really important domestic uses. You could ride them, but they also carry loads. They help you in your your work. Donkeys stand in contrast to horses, which were chiefly associated with war. Horses are ridden by cavalry. Horses pull chariots. But donkeys are kingly. And throughout the Bible, they're almost always associated with kings. In Genesis chapter 49, remember when Jacob is blessing all of his sons and he's pronouncing these prophetic blessings on his boys and the families that will come, the tribes that will come from these sons. He lays his hand on on Judah and, and he blesses Judah and he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. The royal tribe of Judah is a, is a lion's whelp, but he also connects him to donkeys. He says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah 
nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now, that's, a, that's an odd phrase. He binds his donkey to the vine. What, what is that? Well, w- what we know from the first is that Judah has a scepter, so he rules. He has donkeys, and he has a vineyard. A vineyard, a vineyard so large and so lush that he can tie his donkey to the choice vine and not worry about the donkey eating the grapes. And he loves his donkey so much, it doesn't matter if the donkey eats the grapes. He's, he's not worried about it. So Judah, the kingly tribe... As a vineyard, he has a scepter, but Judah keeps donkeys. And so the history of the kingdom begins with Saul looking for his father's donkeys. Saul starts out as a humble man and as a faithful son who goes to great lengths to honor his father. He's searching all over for his father's missing donkeys. And the Lord had told Samuel to go anoint just such a man. Go anoint this man, and this is how you're going to know Uh, uh, the right man to anoint as king over Israel. It's this man who's looking for his father's donkeys. Later, when young David is sent to Saul, his father Jesse sends him with a donkey, and that donkey is loaded with bread and wine. Many years after that, when David is king, his son Absalom will rebel against him, and, and David departs from Jerusalem rather than fighting his son, rather than opposing his son militarily. David departs Jerusalem, and he goes out weeping over the Mount of Olives. Ziba meets him there. You'll recall Ziba is the uh, servant of Melphibosheth, Mephib- um, um, Jonathan's son. So Ziba meets David out there at the Mount of Olives, and he meets him there with a couple of saddled donkeys and bread and wine, and they take off into the wilderness. But the, the image there is despite his exile, David is still the true king. How do we know that? Well, he's, he's riding donkeys. He's still mounted on a donkey. Uh, and so he's still the king. By contrast, Absalom, the usurper, the rebellious son, Absalom ends up with his obnoxious hairdo caught in the branches of a tree while his mule goes out from underneath him. His claim to the kingdom leaves when that mule leaves and leaves him hanging in the tree. And then uh, several years after that, Absalom's half-brother Solomon is established as David's rightful heir. Solomon's going to be the one to take over the kingdom. How do we know? How do we show everybody that Solomon is the heir who will carry forward the dynasty. Solomon is the son of the promise. Well, they figure it out. He's going to ride his father's mule. He's going to ride his father's mule into the city while the people sing and rejoice. And in 1 Kings 1, listen to this. When Solomon does this, all the people went up after him and the people played the flutes and rejoiced with great joy so that the earth seemed to split with their sound. A very similar scene to what we just read about in Matthew chapter 21 with Jesus entering the city and all the people rejoicing uh, with this great loud noise. Well, the prophet Zechariah uh, foretells the coming of a greater king, and that also is quoted in Matthew 21. Whenever you see the New Testament quote a piece of the Old Testament, you go back and you read what came before it and you read what came after it, so you get the full sense of of what is being quoted there. So Matthew quotes Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Zechariah continues the very next thing he says. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim 
and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So the prophecy from Zechariah is that when Messiah King shows up, when Messiah draws near to Jerusalem, he's gonna be unlike any of the kings of the nations. He is just. He has salvation. The other kings will promise deliverance and salvation, but this is the king that has it. This is the king that has the real power, and he speaks peace to the nations. And you'll know him. You'll know him when he shows up because he's gonna ride the colt, the foal of a donkey. He's not gonna be mounted on a war horse. He's not gonna come riding a chariot. He's not coming with bringing weapons of war. And yet, despite this, despite the fact that he does not come as a man of war, yet his kingdom will stretch from sea to sea. All the warmongers want a kingdom that stretched from sea to sea, and they're not gonna get it. It all falls apart. But this king, when he comes, his kingdom will stretch to the ends of the earth. He's the king who is unlike any other. He's the king who conquers, not through the death of his enemies. He's the king who conquers through his own death. Well, why would I go into all this? Why am I in all this stuff about donkeys? You're thinking, I came here to hear about Jesus and you're talking about donkeys. Why, what is the point? What gives? Well, it's because uh, this is an important uh, symbol in the scriptures and so that you know who Jesus is. Jesus is not riding a donkey at this pivotal moment because simply because he's being humble. That's not all that's going on here. He's riding a donkey because he's king. That's why he's riding a donkey. He is the king that Zechariah prophesied would come. And that means that this same Jesus is the one who reigns from sea to sea, wherever the sun shines, wherever the sun shines, that's where Jesus reigns right now not at some point in the faraway future. We're not looking forward to the day when sometime I can't wait until Jesus is king. No, he's king right now. And everyone must submit to him, everybody. I don't want you to miss this. That Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. This was very purposeful, this action in riding into Jerusalem this way. He's not saying to his friends, saying, you know what would be fun? Well, we just ought to get a couple donkeys and ride into town. That would be a lot of fun, wouldn't it? No, he is deliberately reenacting these images from Israel's history, living through these scenes, reminding them of the prophecy, but also demonstrating who he is. Everything that Jesus does is on purpose. He's not flying by the seat of his pants. And we've pointed this out many times in this study. Thus far in the gospel, Jesus has stayed away from the city. Deliberately, he's avoided Jerusalem. And he's avoided confrontation. He's answered the Pharisees in parables and puzzles. He answers their questions with questions, but he avoids getting into the thick of it with them. Remember when John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went away from Judea. He went further into Galilee. And when he heals people, he tells them to be quiet. Don't tell anybody about this. Don't say anything to anybody. But now this all changes. Now it is time to go into the city. Now he purposefully creates a scene that cannot help but provoke the anger of the scribes and the Pharisees. He comes as the son of the kingly tribe of Judah, riding a donkey. He's the greater Saul. He's the greater David. He's the greater Solomon. And he demonstrates his sovereignty here by taking hold of the situation and establishing who he is. Jesus is not a passive victim in the sense that he's just floating along on the actions of other people. He's not just passively going from one thing to the next. 
Jesus chooses the battlefield. Jesus chooses the time and the terms of engagement. He strategically engineers this moment of confrontation because this is his city and this is his father's house and this is his vineyard. He knowingly provokes the confrontation to come. So when Jesus gets close to the city of Jerusalem, he goes into the city the way that David came out of it when David was exiled. David came out of the city and collected his donkeys on the Mount of Olives. Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives and says to his men, I want you to go to the city. I want you to go to the village and go get me a couple of donkeys. Remember, David wept leaving the city, going over the Mount of Olives, weeping. Uh, Luke tells us that Jesus wept going into the city. And uh, so, so Jesus is reenacting David's exile in reverse. The, the real Davidic king, the true king, the true son of David has returned. The greater David has returned. And when Jesus comes into the city and to the outskirts of the city, he's bringing with him quite an entourage. Everywhere he's gone throughout the gospel, crowds have followed him, multitudes. Uh, he fed 5,000 people on one occasion. He fed 4,000 people on another occasion. So a great, a great mass of humanity joined him up at Mount Hermon. And then all the way down, he's just been building, and, and this group has been snowballing all the way down to Jerusalem. He comes to a city already bursting at the seams. It's Passover time. The city of Jerusalem was normally about 70,000 people, historians tell us. Uh, during normal times of the year, but at great feast days, that, that population could swell to two and a half million people spilling out into all the villages and the surrounding territory around the city. So this is a city swelling with people, bursting with people. Jesus chose this time on purpose. And the fact that this new candidate for Messiahship, this, this new prophet, this, this new king has come riding into town on a donkey this is going to draw a lot of attention. This is going to set the whole city abuzz. Everybody knows Zechariah's prophecy. Everybody knows the significance of this. And they're all thinking, could this be the one? Could this be it? Is this time? Is this the Messiah? So by the time the disciples get back to Jesus with the donkeys, a great multitude has poured out and they're lining the road leading into the gate of the city. The people are taking off their cloaks and they're taking off their robes. And some of them put them on the back of the donkey so that Jesus sits on their, on their clothes and others are spreading them out on the roads. Letting, letting somebody ride over the back of your cloak, especially if it's the only garment you own, if it's the only coat you own, letting somebody ride over that is saying, I have nothing uh, of, of uh, nothing that I value more than you. you. You ride over me. You are above me. I give everything to esteem and to honor, honor you. That's what the people are saying about Jesus. You ride over our backs. You ride over our cloaks. You ride over us. You are carried into the city, enthroned on our praises. You, you're enthroned on our adoration for you. Then they cut down branches. John, in his gospel, says, they're specifically palm branches, branches of palm trees. They're waving them and they're spreading them out on the road. So the image is, if you're riding through these branches, if you're riding over the branches, the image is that he's lifted up. He's lifted up over the people, over the garments. He's lifted up over the trees. He's riding above the trees like he's coming through the sky, like he's coming with the clouds, like Psalm 68 says, Yahweh rides on the clouds. But these palm branches are also these nationalistic symbols. 
It came into popularity during the time of the Maccabees. If you know anything about that time, that intertestamental period between Malachi and, and Matthew, uh, the, Malachi, the, the Maccabees were this mixed bag of, of guys who kept the, the Jewish identity alive, but at the same time were full of corruption themselves. They waved palm branches. The Maccabees used these, these palm branches in their processions after military victories. The palm branch was imprinted on their coins. It was a symbol of Jewish independence. The palm branch also has a connection with um, the Feast of Booths. God prescribed this feast back in Leviticus, said every year you need to make these booths, live, in, live in under these huts made of branches, and remember the time that you were in the wilderness. So it was this week-long camp out under these, uh, under these branches. And that's a feast, the, the, the Festival of Booths, the Feast of Booths is associated with wandering and homelessness and a search for a homeland. And so why this is such a significant symbol at this time in history is because of the Roman occupation they have in their mind, it's as if we're still wandering, we're still in the wilderness, we're still under branches, we're living in booths, and we're not established in the land. So these branches are really mixed symbols that they're waving. So they're, so they're grounded in the history of redemption, but there's also this separate Maccabean militaristic reactionary undercurrent to this. They're, they're, these are symbols of this restless insurrectionist spirit for many. And they sing Psalm 118 as they do this. They sing Hosanna. Hosanna is a word like amen or hallelujah. It's a liturgical expression, and it means something akin to save us now, we beg. This too is a mixed song. This is a mixed prayer. The salvation that most of them are seeking is a very different kind of salvation than the one that Jesus is offering. And we know this because later we find out that they're not really interested in receiving the kind of deliverance that Jesus is offering. What they say, when they say, save us, when they sing, deliver us, they're thinking, deliver us from Rome, deliver us from Herod, deliver us from taxation, deliver us from this oppression, liberate us. But Jesus is coming to save them from a bigger enemy than Rome. From, a, from an enemy more horrible than Herod, an enemy more onerous than the taxation and the oppression that they're under. Jesus is coming to deliver them from Satan and from the, the power of the grave and from their sin. Jesus is doing something for them that's way bigger than what they're asking for, but they don't see this. So this creates this kind of uneasy tension in all of these events. There's a disconnect between what Jesus is doing and their perception of what he's doing. So Jesus wants to make known his, his coming into the city. He wants to provoke all these institutions, provoke all these authorities to expose themselves as the wicked men that they are. But not everybody's aware of everything that's happening. They think Jesus may be just another political revolutionary. We'll see, we'll see how all this pans out. But so that no one misses what he's here to do, nobody misses what his mission is. When he gets into the city, he doesn't take this great mass of humanity, maybe a few thousand people, he doesn't take them up to the Antonia Fortress where the Roman soldiers are garrisoned. He, he could have started quite a riot. He might have been able to even overcome the, the fortress. Many of them would have died, but enough of them could have broke through that they could have taken over the fortress. Jesus doesn't take them up to Herod's palace to rush the guards and drag Herod out of there and tar and feather him. Uh, that, that's not what he does. That's not where Jesus goes. Surprisingly, to them at least, Jesus goes directly to the temple, which is 
where their actual problem lies. They think their problem is Rome. They think their problem is Herod, but their problem is much deeper and much more, much, much more spiritual. Jesus uh, goes to the temple because Israel's problem has always been, has always been false worship, a lack of obedience. Uh, the problem rests in what is happening at the temple. So pick up in verse 12. Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Hold on to that. The blind and the lame come to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And what is happening? This is not an example of Jesus losing his temper. You know, Jesus lost his temper one time and everybody can understand when I lose my temper because Jesus did one time. And so he, you know, Jesus was perfect. So if I lose my temper every once in a while, I'll just, you know, look at Jesus. That's not what's happening. This is not Jesus's attack on capitalism. This is not Jesus prohibiting selling books in the church foyer. That's not what this is about. Um, having doves and other animals for sale in the temple courtyard was a good thing. It was necessary for those who are traveling long distances, if you try to bring a sacrificial animal to the temple, it could die, it could get stolen, it could get maimed on the way if you bring your perfect prize animal. And so in Deuteronomy 14, God prescribes, he says, you can take your increase, exchange it for money, and then when you get down to the temple, you can trade it there. You can buy a sacrificial animal if you're traveling a long distance. You can do that. And so to buy animals... Uh, um, was, not a, was not a problem at the, uh, at the temple. God prescribed that. And, and to buy the animals and to pay, to pay your tithes, you needed the right money. And so if you were coming from a different country and you're traveling, you traded your various currencies for the temple coin. Uh, you, needed, you needed the temple coin to, to do transactions at the temple. Now, no doubt, there are improprieties, there are various abuses within that system. I don't doubt that there were some people charging poor people way too much and that there were other guys not being fair with the exchange rate, no doubt. But that's not really the focus of what Jesus is doing here. That's not what he's talking about because Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. Here is the thrust of Jesus's action. Isaiah 56, uh, Yahweh says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Israel was called out from the nations as a kingdom of priests who were to lead the world in worship and obedience before God. They worship on behalf of the world. They intercede for all of the nations. They intercede and pray for all of the world. When Israel was faithful, the whole world was blessed. And you see this at the peak of Solomon's uh, reign where all of the nations are flooding in and understanding and, and growing and learning wisdom and everyone is flourishing because of the faithfulness of Israel and the glories of God's house. But when Israel worshiped idols, the whole world was plunged into darkness. It, it was as if the light of the world had gone out when Israel disobeyed. They covered up the light. Israel was set on point 
to lead the world in right living before God and showing the world what it meant to obey Yahweh. And this is what Jesus references. He says, my uh, father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But they, it, is, it isn't that in the first century. It's not that because they've hated the world. They despise the world. They despise the nations. They've tried to insulate themselves. They won't even eat with a Gentile uh, lest they become uh, in, unclean by eating with a Gentile. They've turned inward on themselves. So Jesus said, you know, my father's house is a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And you've heard me say this before, and I'll just bring it up briefly again. I'm not sure that thieves is the best translation here just because of how we think of thieves. I, I, I think it's an okay translation depending on how we understand what this word is. It's true that the religious authorities, the Pharisees and the others, it's true that they're taking advantage of people. The Sadducees, they're devouring widows' houses. That's true. There's plenty of stealing going on. But there's a Greek word for people who take your property. There's a Greek word for people who steal your property, and that is kleptes, thief. Well, you know that word because you've heard the word kleptomania. You know what kleptomania is, somebody who just takes stuff just to, just to take it, a, 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 petty, a petty thief. But, but Jesus and Matthew don't use the word kleptes here. That's not the word, not petty thief. The word is lestes. This is a criminal. This is a word for criminals, a brigand a pirate, a buccaneer, not just a petty thief. We're talking about a professional criminal. That's what Jesus calls them. And this was a popular way of describing insurrectionists, groups of revolutionaries. In ancient Rome, Cicero described violent revolutionaries as lestes. The same word that Jesus used here, Cicero calls insurrectionists lestes. These are factions who obstinately reject any authority and they're, they're commonly referred to uh, by, by this term, by gangs of bandits, literally gangs, gangs of lesties. And that's what Jesus calls them. That is the image Jesus uses to describe the activity and the people at the temple. My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And yet you have turned it into a den of agitators and insurrectionists. This temple is a hangout for terrorists and zealots. The temple is infested with reactionaries and radical revolutionaries. The temple itself has become this nationalistic symbol of their Jewish identity and their heritage. They have this assumption that as long as the temple is standing, everything is gonna be okay with the world. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how corrupt our, our worship is. It doesn't matter how, how filthy our lives are. It doesn't matter. No matter what else is going on, or what else we're promoting, everything is right with the world as long as the temple is standing. Because God wouldn't tear down his own house and he wouldn't, he wouldn't remove his chosen people. We're his chosen special people and God's not gonna do anything to us. So we can do whatever we wanna do. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they chant. Surely God will not destroy this house. So we're fine. And instead of being turned outward toward the nations to lead them and to serve them and to direct them in worship of Yahweh as a kingdom of priests, they instead, uh, instead turn inward to preserve themselves. Now, this is the attitude that Jesus directly confronts by violently disrupting the activity at the temple and rebuking them. This insurrectionist revolutionary temperament it's what Jesus has been addressing since the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about turning the other cheek and going the extra mile, 
What he's saying is you are not going to be exalted over the nations through pride and arrogance by your willful disobedience. That's not going to get you there. God has promised them that if they obey, they will be a blessing to the whole world. Isaiah says, if you obey, if you worship me uprightly, the whole world is going to come to Zion. The whole world is going to flood into Zion to learn my law and to learn wisdom. They're going to seek it from you. They're going to sit down at your feet to learn wisdom. If you obey me, everybody's going to come to you. But that's not how they want it. They want independence, and they want to rule the nations not by obeying God. They want it by violence and revolution. And because of this, they are going to be destroyed. When, when Jesus flips over the tables, he's interrupting the worship of the temple, even if momentarily, you know, after Jesus moves on, they're going to flip the tables back over and they're going to go right back to doing what they're doing. And five minutes later, you would know that anything had happened. Um, this action, though, was deeply symbolic. This is a warning of the greater destruction to come. When Rome shows up in a few decades, they're going to do more than flip tables over. The whole place is coming down and not one stone will be left on another. Again, Rome isn't going to knock everything down because they're selling doves. That's not, that's not why. It, it, everything's going to get knocked down because of their revolutionary hubris and their insubordination. Rome is going to level the city and the temple, and Rome is going to do it with God's permission, with God's blessing. So Jesus' action here in the temple is a symbolic conquest. And here's another clue to this. Way back, David, when he first conquers the city of Jerusalem. Remember, the city of Jerusalem was a holdout after the conquests of the land under Joshua. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't take the city of Jerusalem. It was full of Jebusites. And it wasn't until David came along that that city was conquered. It was a fortress. I mean, you, you could, that was a hard nut to crack in, in Joshua's time and up until David's time. But David was fed up with it, and he said, we're not letting these Jebusites hang out here any longer. And so when David goes to take the city from the Jebusites, the king of Jerusalem, the Jebusite king says, try it. Come on up here, big boy. Our blind and our lame will knock you off the walls. You can't come in here. And uh, uh, the weakest of us are going to push you away. And then David finds a way into the city. He finds somebody to crawl up a water shaft. And his men get into the city. And he says, look at me. Look at me defeat these blind and lame. He calls the Jebusites the blind and the lame. He conquers it. And he makes Jerusalem his new capital. Jesus is now, again, following in the steps of his father, David. He is reconquering Jerusalem. He is doing it symbolically. And when he gets to the temple, who does he find there to receive him? Well, the blind and the lame are there, and he heals them. It's just another indication of what Jesus is up to. It's, it's conquest. It's symbolic, prophetic conquest. Jesus is not just getting mad. He's not just losing his temper. This is a prophetic action. We've got one more that we're going to look at uh, with the fig tree. Jesus goes out that night. He goes outside the city, and he sleeps in Bethany. Jesus doesn't spend a night in the city until the night he's arrested. So this whole week before his crucifixion, he spends the night in Bethany. He comes back the next morning, and along the way, he stops at a fig tree, and we pick up in verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And in your mind, you say, huh, fig leaves. That's interesting. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately, the fig tree withered away. 
And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? So Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Well, here we go again. Why did Jesus curse this helpless little old fig tree? I mean, he was just being so mean and so cruel and so ugly to this little tree, especially when Mark points out, Mark will say it's not even the season for figs. So what's Jesus doing? One explanation I, I, I think holds water is that this time of year, the tree wouldn't have had fruit. This is spring, it's around Passover time. It wouldn't have fruit but it was supposed to at least have little buds. It was supposed to have flowers that would turn into fruit. And Jesus doesn't find anything. All he sees is leaves. He says it, it had nothing on it but leaves. And if all it had were leaves and no buds, then it would not be fruitful that year. So put this together with what has just happened and you can see what's going on. Jesus has just ridden into town with a lot of leaves being waved in his face, a lot of branches, a lot of, way, a lot of leaves, but very little in the way of fruit. In fact, no fruit, no repentance, no confession of sin, no weeping. He did see triumphalism. He did see national idolatry. He saw all kinds of zealous pride from folks hoping that maybe, just maybe the Romans were about to get what was coming to them, but it's all leaves. It's all showy, flashy stuff, no useful fruit. And of course, fig leaves are a terrible covering for, for nakedness and shame and sin. Only the blood of the sacrifice that Jesus is gonna offer can adequately cover sins. All of this is just window dressing. It's, it's all just wallpaper. All of their self-righteousness and pride amounted nothing to, to nothing more than, than, than fig leaves. So Jesus curses the fruitless fig tree as a demonstration. Again, this is what's gonna happen to this temple and this is what's gonna happen. This is what's gonna happen to the city. He sounds just like Jeremiah here because Jeremiah, who lived before the first destruction of Solomon's temple, Jeremiah compared the city, the doomed city, to a fruitless fig tree. So, so like this fig tree, the temple is fruitless. The city is fruitless. It's gonna be judged and stricken and the temple is gonna dry up from the roots just like this fig tree. Well, the disciples pass by. The disciples say, well, they see this fig tree shriveling up and they say, how did that happen? And Jesus said, because I prayed for it to happen. And through faith and prayer, you can also pray. You can pray that this mountain will be cast into the sea. Pray and it will be done. Now, this mountain, what mountain is he talking about? When he says this mountain, it must be the mountain that the temple is sitting on, the mountain from which so much persecution and hatred and vitriol is gonna come against Jesus and against his his bride. So Jesus says, you need to pray that this mountain will be cast into the sea. And because y'all know uh, biblical symbolism, you know the seas are always the nations. Whenever we talk about the seas, the raging waters of the seas in prophetic literature, it's always the nations. So pray that this mountain, this place that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, pray that it's going to be forced out into the nations. And it will be, one way or the other. It'll be cast among the nations. And again, that's precisely what happens within that generation. That mountain is plucked up and the stones are scattered. The stones of the temple are scattered and those people are distributed among the nations and are no more. There's one more story. There's one more story from the Old Testament hanging in the background of these events. And that's the story of King Jehu. Uh, in 2 Kings 8 through 10. 
King Jehu was anointed by Elisha during one of the darkest episodes of the kingdom. This is during the time of the house of Ahab. The house of Ahab is reigning. And Jehu was ordained by God to be an avenger against the idolatrous house of Ahab. Jehu is not a meek, peaceful ruler. Jehu is a man of war. He doesn't ride a donkey. Jehu rides a horse. And when Jehu is anointed, the people throw their cloaks down on the ground and he rides over them. He rides over a carpet of everybody's garments, people who are ready for deliverance from the house of, of Ahab. Uh, Jehu kills Joram, king of Israel. He destroys Ahab's house. He tramples Jezebel under his horse's hooves. And then Jehu goes into the temple, the temple of Baal, and he kills all the priests. He burns and tears down the temple and he makes it a refuse heap. Talk about a cleansing of the temple. That's what Jehu does to the temple of Baal. So, so when we see Jesus in Revelation carrying out his judgments against apostate Israel, in Revelation, Jesus is not riding, riding a donkey, is he? Jesus is riding a war horse and he's carrying a sword. Jesus is the greater Jehu when he comes the second time in judgment against Jerusalem because Israel does not receive the Davidic king of peace riding a donkey. They're going to get the Jehu. They're going to get the Avenger riding a war horse. Well, that comes later. But here in Matthew 21, Jesus comes to his city. He comes to his father's house. He comes to his vineyard. He is the Lord of the land. He has the right to expect fruit from his land. When you go out to your garden and you've planted tomato vines and you've planted, uh, you know, pea plants and you've, you've planted, you go out there, you expect fruit. I've worked for this. I've got a right to expect fruit. Well, Jesus comes expecting fruit and the people who are working the land and the people who are living on the land are only there because of his good favor. But when he comes for the harvest, he doesn't find anything. Israel is a fruitless people. All they can do is produce fig leaves, which do not cover their sin. So these wicked tenants are going to be evicted very shortly. So as we read this, uh, how do we receive this? How do we process all this? Well, there's great comfort that Jesus is king. He is the king that Zechariah said he would be, and he rules right now over the entire earth. He is enthroned above the cosmos. He is enthroned over all creation, and Jesus rules from sea to sea. Amen and hallelujah. But there's also a warning here. The Lord Jesus still comes to visit his vineyard. He draws near to his church, and he expects there to be fruit. We are here to produce the good fruit that he desired from Israel but didn't get. The church is the house of prayer to all the nations. The church leads the nations in obedience and right worship before God. The church disciples the nations, not to be turned inward, but to be turned toward them, to lead them in righteousness. And we're here to produce the good fruit that he desired from Israel that he didn't get. We are here to respond with the honor and obedience and humility that he didn't get from that generation. That means that we have to learn the lessons that they never learned. That means we don't act like they acted. Don't presume upon God's blessings that just because you're a Christian and God has been merciful with you and patient with you, that must mean that he tolerates your sin and that he really doesn't care about your sin. Don't, don't assume that. That's what Israel presumed 
They were destroyed. Don't presume that. Don't high-handedly ignore God's law and carve out for yourself your, your little laws, your own little list of, of righteous acts and righteous thoughts by which you judge everybody else. You know, these little, these little bits of wisdom, these little bits of knowledge that you and you alone know. You, you've got this all figured out and everybody else is a dummy. Everybody else is a ding-dong, but you got this figured out and that makes you righteous before God. That makes you the smart one, very self-satisfied in your very, your very complicated set of beliefs and rules. That's pharisaical. And for that, Israel was judged. Don't compare yourself to the wicked and think that since you're so much moral than they are, that you're safe from any consequences of your sin. Don't imitate the wicked. Don't imitate their way of thinking or their way of living or their way of talking or their way of arguing. Avoid it. You must come out from them and be separate in terms of behavior, in terms of confession, in terms of life. Don't become idolaters. Don't put your trust in anything other than the Lord Jesus. Come out. Don't murmur. Don't complain and don't gripe like Israel did. They, they, were, they were a nation of whiners. They whined all the way from Egypt to the land of Canaan. I would have done it all the way back if they turned around. Don't do that. Why do you act like that? Why do you complain all the time? Why is everything everybody else's fault? Why, 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 are, you, why are you a victim of all, of all things? Why are you a victim all the time? Why is nothing ever good enough for you? If, if you aren't happy with what God has given you, you're not happy with God. You're not satisfied in him. Don't be like that generation who died in the wilderness. We must learn to hear and obey God's word. They never listened. They, they, never, liked, they never liked what Moses had to say. They didn't like what the prophets had to tell them. They killed the prophets. They put Jesus to death. They ignored Jesus himself. They complained and argued, but they would never humble themselves and they would never submit. They would rather kill a prophet than be convicted of their sin. So don't, don't be like that generation. Don't be like them. Don't cover up your sins. Don't hide behind fig leaves and excuses. No, expose your sins, confess them, and have your sins covered by the blood of Jesus. Don't allow pagan political sentiments or worldly agendas to have a greater impact on your mind and your speech and your outlook for the world, don't let those predominate your mind over God's word. Don't think that we are ever going to have any rule or any influence in the earth by any other means than obedience to God. Proverbs 16, seven says, when a man's ways please Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. There is no other way, no other way to dominion and influence and authority and glory than to make it our aim in all things to please the Lord in everything. So do be content. Do be grateful. Do assume that we don't know everything. We don't have everything figured out and don't see everything clearly. That's humility. And run, don't walk, run to the Savior who comes riding on a donkey. Confess your sins and humble yourself and give him the fruit of your life that he comes seeking. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to indeed humble us before this king. Father, strengthen us by your spirit and may you see the fruit in our lives that you didn't get from that generation, but receive it from us. Receive our thanks and our worship and our praise. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen.